If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Hey, the woke are killing our cities. And we have proof. Well, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast today. Victoria Taft with you. Today we're going to talk with the author of this book, Jason Rantz. But I just got to give you a prelude of what we're going to talk about. Americans have become aware of the destructive Antifa Black Lives Matter movements only during, I think, since 2020, really. But, oh, honey, they have been doing their thing for a lot longer than that with equally destructive results. And we'll tell you what, about that coming up in just a moment. And this movement, these two movements were, uh, they worked together to destroy, start fires, cause riots, uh, vandalism. They hit cops, denigrated our traditions. And they said that right was wrong and wrong was right and black was white and, and white was black and they turned everything upside down. Why did they do that? And what is the net result? of this having happened to our country since especially 2020. Well, let's take a look at this video I saw on in Instagram. It's just amazing. on what has happened to the city of San Francisco since 2020? Take a look. Did you ever think this could happen to San Francisco? Never. One of the gems downtown was the San Francisco Shopping Center. That's in foreclosure. Nordstrom, they're gone. That mall underwent so much criminal activity, smash and grab. They had it. Developed the owner of the mall. The theaters are closed. Nordstrom's gone. Most of the shops are gone. That's in foreclosure. That's unfathomable 20 years ago. Union Square was the gem of San Francisco. People loved to be at Union Square. All the high-end shops were there. The great St. Francis Hotel up the street, the Fairmont, and everything in between. You can't give away space on those storefronts right now. I should take your camera crew up there. Four lease, four lease, four lease. Companies like Sephora took a hike. They're not going to go through this stuff. So bad, the program that the mayor initiated called the Ambassador Program, they hire retired policemen, but these police officers are not allowed to carry a weapon. They have to be unarmed. As far as I'm concerned, it's a useless presence. The conditions are just deplorable. Well, that's right. And this is uh, San Francisco in all of its doom-loopian glory. It isn't only because of Antifa and Black Lives Matter that this has happened. It has been helped along, however, by that. And this is what's happening, not only in San Francisco and West Coast cities, but as Jason Rance writes in his book, the forward to his book, many Americans have no idea how badly our largest Democrat-run cities have deteriorated. We've been complacent for far too long, assuming that the craziest elements of the radical left 
would stay confined to the East and West Coasts. But crime, drug addiction, homelessness, left-wing school indoctrination, so-called inclusive housing policies, and outrageous taxes don't stay within big city limits of places like L.A., Chicago, Portland, New York, Seattle, and San Francisco. Oh, no. The effects of ideologically driven left-wing policies always spread, which should alarm Americans, all of us, regardless of where we lived. And Jason Rance, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. You're sounding the alarm. You're telling us some people what they already know, but you're also alerting people to what is to come. Why'd you write the book? I wrote the book because as I've been covering these issues from city to city, there was very clearly a theme that we have the same policy, in some cases, quite literally the same policy, either being introduced in an ordinance, uh, legislation, just an idea or an initiative that started to pop up all around these major cities. And the results were virtually the same. Regardless of the issue, it would lead to more crime, more drug use, more homelessness. And yet, weirdly, at the same time, we're spending way more money to live in these communities. And so rather than step back and just allow it to continue to spread, I decided to write this book to give tools to folks to, number one, truly understand what's happening. And I would tell you, even conservatives, I don't think, truly grasp how bad it is. And to decode the language that the radical left uses to convince people that the policies that they're proposing, which have been complete disasters, actually are going to be disasters. The, the, when you have control of the language, it's much easier to convince people that you are right, that you're on the right side of an issue, and they talk in code. And it's hard for conservatives to win these arguments to convince our neighbors not to go down a certain path if we don't even know the language that they're using and the language that's convincing Democrat, moderate voters to go with the radical. That's right. As a talk show host in Seattle, radio talk show host, and a person that we've seen on Fox News uh, all the time, I mean, you're always on there, you have an opportunity to convey these ideas to people. But you say in your book, you say in your work, that it hasn't been something that you've been able to clearly communicate in the time, time periods you have. So you had to put it in the book. What are we supposed to get? What is that nugget? that will be the Rosetta Stone for us to understand what the frickin' A is happening in our communities. So there's two things. Uh, number one, I tell you very specifically, connecting the dots between the ideological beliefs and the end result. Why do folks believe what they believe, the radicals who are pursuing these policies? It's very easy to simply say, what's killing Americans? It's Democrats. It's not that simple. And, and just getting rid of a Democrat lawmaker is not going to get rid of any of these policies. You have to actually know why they're pursuing something. And then number two, like I said, you will learn the language that is used that is oftentimes used to sort of blanket themselves as heroes, as compassionate. We're here because we really truly care. Don't you care? If you don't say yes to this program, I don't think you care. I guess you want to see homeless people die. It's a guilt trip. It is really condescending, but it's very effective. And when, you know, keeping in mind that there are two groups of people who are going to take something away from this book. I Obviously, I want Democrats to read it. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. You've got Republicans who, or moderate Republicans, independents who live in these big Democrat-run cities who 
the only way we're going to be happy is if we at least get a moderate Democrat into office. We're not going to get a Republican into office overnight. You're not going to see that kind of change. And so for those folks, it's important to understand how to speak the language because you're arguing to people who are on the opposite ideological fence that you are, but would not support the radical ideas that are being presented as not radical, totally innovative, but normal. And then, of course, the groups of folks who are conservatives in conservative cities or counties or states who don't recognize the slow creep of these policies into their own states. And then before they know it, they've got a housing first policy, which is very big in Utah. You've got a harm reduction policy, which is very big in parts of Texas and New Mexico, as well as obviously the deeply blue areas. And if you don't know that it's happening and you can't connect the dots, you're not going to be able to effectively stop any of this. Yeah, they they make up euphemisms uh, and we're supposed to buy in. I can remember mm-hmm. this is years ago, Jason, and I was a talk show host in Portland and I just for the sake of transparency, Jason is my boss when I fill in on KTTH in <laughs> Seattle. I get to fill in for him occasionally and also Brian Suits. And But I can remember this guy pulling me aside. I was at an event and he pulled me aside. You have to sit down with me. You have to sit down with me. And I said, okay, I have to tell you about stakeholders. And, I, and I'm like, going, uh, okay, now my friend said this guy's not a nut, okay? Well, and what he was trying to tell me was they were changing the nomenclature so that people would now be brought into a process and they'd be sort of uh, identified as people who had a, you know, a, you know, dog in the fight, if you will, the stakeholder. But what that did was they were the ones who did who defined what that person who that person was, what that person did in order to be defined as a stakeholder and completely left out the voting populace. OK, that's that's I mean, and that just in a nutshell tells you why knowing the nomenclature is so important. All of a sudden, there were people who would not be allowed to engage in the process because, oh, you're not part of the process because you're not a stakeholder. Yeah, it's about countering their narrative. And when I'll give you an example. Harm reduction is a policy that I think is very clearly to blame for the drug crisis we have in this country. It's not something that I think the average person can define. Some have probably not even heard that term before. And yet it is the strategy that's being used across the country. So if you don't know that, how in the world are you supposed to lobby for a policy that does work when you can't even point to the policy that doesn't work. And it, it was pitched in a way that it was all about keeping someone alive so that they could then get treatment. You have an addict, you need to get them through the night so that tomorrow morning you can get them to that treatment center. And that's a reasonable pitch. If you told me that you had a plan that tomorrow morning you would actually get someone, if you just let me do a little bit with this guy, just get me through the night, uh, give me a little bit of money, we'll put him into detox, great. i will be like, okay, yeah, let's do it. But that's not really what it is. They don't really pitch detox. When we're talking about harm reduction, it's quite literally what it means. They are reducing the harm associated with illicit substances. And the way that they're doing it is by enabling the drug addiction, by handing out needles, by handing out crack pipes or booty bumping kits. My favorite. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite. You're the first person I, I'd heard from about that. I was like, yes, I had what to explain the hell that. is he talking about? I explained that on Tucker to <laughs> 3 million people. So that was very fun. You, you could imagine the emails and tweets I got after that. But, but if you told the average person 
But that's what harm reduction is. I don't think that they would say yes to it. I don't think that they would be as open-minded right. as you would need to be in order to accept something like that. So you're so, saying you're so you're it, saying you're gonna you're gonna reduce harm, but you're gonna give me a crack pipe? What? And that's exactly, exactly. what it is. Yeah, it same, doesn't make any sense, and people would do it. it. Housing first is another great example of that. People don't know what that is. It's but it's literally again, it's one of those almost literal terms. We put someone in a house before anything else, and then we address the underlying causes of their homelessness, except they never address the underlying causes of the homelessness. Because when we're talking about housing first, it means there are no preconditions for entry into this kind of program, which puts people on subsidized housing for the rest of their lives, because you at no point can say to them, okay, we got you indoors, but we're going to kick you out unless you get help for your mental health issue or your addiction. That never happens. And so all you've done is brought someone who's homeless indoors where they will eventually die of an overdose or something else. You see that that's happening elsewhere in the country, and it's failed every place it's tried. But you never know it's failed until they forget to refer to it again. They just, it sort of dies out, a, you know, a slow death. Well, what was, so I did an entire chapter on Housing First in Salt Lake City, which was not my intention. I did not intend to do that. But as I was doing more and more research, I said to myself, okay, this needs to be its own chapter. Salt Lake City has been used as a success story because they got to functional zero homelessness due to a housing first policy, except they did not get to functional zero homelessness due to housing first. They never got there at all. In fact, since they declared it a success, they've had homelessness get worse year after year after year in Salt Lake City. And yet it is still to this day by radical leftists pointing to that and saying, oh no, it was a huge success there. That's why we want to do it here. It got a whole bunch of press uh, uh, publicity at the time. San Francisco Chronicle was all in. Washington Post was all in. Daily Show did a big thing, mocking the conservatives who said this wouldn't work. And since then, it's, it's been created into this sort of this uh, myth that it actually it, it doesn't. And so I go through the data and I actually tell you what did happen. Yeah, if it was fascinating. I, I, I thought to myself, he's done an entire chapter on that. I need to read this and figure out why he's done that. And obviously it's because, it, you know, it didn't work. It didn't work. And what's really sad is the people who hold themselves out as the saviors of humanity, those leftists who say, you know, it cannot be done unless I'm here to help you, also fail to understand human nature. Um, they ignore it. And, and, you know, that gets to such a much deeper problem, Jason. What they is it? They ignore addiction, <laughs> like what addiction mm. does to someone. It, it's yeah. even beyond human nature because you're, you're obviously right that humans are going to always, almost always do exactly what they can with the least resistance that's going to help them. And when they find themselves in vulnerable positions, that is a very alluring prospect. But when you're dealing with an addiction or a mental health issue on top of that issue, of just human nature is the fact that you're not thinking clearly. You're not making the best choices because you have become overcome by the drug of choice or that mental health issue that hasn't actually been treated. And so, you know, we step back and we pretend that it's uh, it, it lacks compassion to sweep an encampment with the intent of bringing people indoors by simply saying, you know, we got to be where they are when they're ready. That's the only they're never going to be ready because they're they clearly haven't found rock bottom living out on the streets stealing from a local target or breaking into cars so they can feed their their $2 a pill fentanyl addiction. That's not rock bottom to them because they're oftentimes also dealing with a mental health issue that is preventing them from truly understanding what's going on. And the addiction does that, of course, as well. And so you can't just wait for them to be ready. They're never going to be ready. 
Well, so there was a guy, I think it was uh, Kevin Dahlgren, interviewed him on uh, Twitter or X, and the guy was talking about it. He is? Kevin oh, is? yes, he is. From Why? Portland? What happened? I, oh, I, he I is trouble. She, oh, well, well, he got into some trouble. I think he was just arrested and charged because of some uh, stealing. Yeah. We're going to have to Google that no, one. I, what happened? Oh, I, it, was some, it was accused of some sort of scam. I'm not entirely sure what it was other than it oh, was taking God. stuff from people who are – these are, of course, allegations. I have no clue if they're true. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, he's getting into a little bit of trouble. Oh, well, you know what? What I know of him – I don't know about this situation, but what I know of him uh, so far is all good. So it's all to yeah. the good. And it came and as I'll a shock into- to a lot of people. Uh, absolutely. But he did talk to a guy um, who was on the street and who said, you know, Seattle and Portland, they're the easiest places to be homeless because, you you know, like four or five meals a day, you can go and through the line twice. You have a place you can stay if you want. You're, you know, I don't have to do anything. I mean, I have a tent. They gave me a tent, you know, kind of a stuff, you know, stuff like that. We yeah, make but, it so but you're easy. enabling. Exactly. They're just being exactly. enabled to continue this behavior. And if you're going to enable it, it's going to continue. I, this is not a shock. You don't even have to get all that innovative in order to treat that issue. But people don't quite understand the underlying ideology behind it. And again, the language that they use to convince people that what they're doing is compassionate. And you'll be seen as a hero too. Just say yes and give me $12 billion a year for my budget, despite getting nothing correct and the problem getting worse, give me even more money the year after. You have a homeless industrial complex. It really is. Um, when when the government said, hey, we're going to take it out of the, basically, I mean, they didn't say this. We're going to take it out of the hands of, you know, Salvation Army and we're going to take it out of the hands of the Union Gospel Mission. You know, people with with decades upon decades of success in helping people with addictions and homelessness. We're going to do it. And, and, uh, we're, and what they've done is just do what they can to uh, help out their friends and NGOs. And I'm 20 bucks says like a lot of those people in NGOs, they're their friends. They're making dough and they have no financial incentive to fix the problem. I mean, think about it this way. If you're guaranteed, housing first model guarantees that you will always have clientele. It guarantees that because you're not forcing them to get better and then get self-sustaining, right? So when you're in that position, I don't know if I like to think that people don't have nefarious intent while acknowledging that there is a percentage that do, but there is clearly... Uh, I'll use language of the left, an unconscious bias that might get them to keep people homeless because it's job security for them. Well, and that also just glides right into law enforcement and how, you know, you want to be, you want to harm, you know, conduct harm reduction. You want to have homeless for, or housing first. You want to do all this. You can't possibly sweep the streets, please. And that's what yeah. uh, th- everyone knows that that's absolute nonsense. And when you hey, look, homelessness and addiction. <laughs> Criminal justice can't be the only thing involved, but it has to be involved. And when you see the carrot and stick approach being used, and I go through examples in the book of cities that are actually doing this right, including Marysville, Washington, it it turns out you can actually get the results that you need, but you have to allow police to be a part of it. Police defunding. You do spend an awful lot of time talking about what the, the reaction was to police defunding and the re- very real problems it has caused for the rest of the law-abiding, peaceful people in all of these different cities. Yeah, 100%. And of course, it wasn't just police defunding, but it was done within that movement. And it started with defunding. And certainly, uh, a lot of the policies that folks put in place or reforms that were made were 
discussed for, in some cases, decades before, but George Floyd was very unique what happened to him in this country. And the movement that happened afterwards was very unique. And these folks took clear advantage in mm-hmm. being able to push their radical agenda. And surprise, it, surprise. It, yeah, surprise, <laughs> surprise. It didn't quite work. And, yeah. you know, as someone who lives in Washington state, we have a bill or a law that says police can't pursue criminals in vehicles. Uh, unless right. there is now there's probable cause for a violent felony, but that's about it. Well, that doesn't really help, but it does explain why you've got a bunch of people who are stealing cars, driving them through storefronts, and then driving off in another stolen car with whatever it is you stole. The problem, however, is that the average person in Washington state doesn't actually know that that's a law. They get mad at the cops. And I've talked to so many sheriffs and police chiefs who said, yeah, when I explain this to them, it's the first time they've ever heard it. Because local media does a really bad job of connecting dots to why we're getting the crime that we're getting, a surge in a very specific type of crime, to actual policy. When you go around the country, D.C., Atlanta, Chicago, like they put in place a whole bunch of different rules that basically, pardon the lazy pun, but they put handcuffs on the cops so they weren't able to do their jobs. And we're, we're seeing and living the results of that. And in some cases, it's happening with policies you wouldn't even expect would create this kind of chaos, and yet it does. And I go through that in the book. You know, I, I tell the story of Jedi, the police dog, because this made me so damn mad. Jedi, unfortunately, was a victim of a ban on certain kinds of weapons. The Washington State uh, Legislature, which is completely controlled by the Democrats, banned any caliber weapon that was deemed too high. They don't understand that just because you have a high caliber weapon, it doesn't mean that it's more deadly than one that they didn't ban. And so what they ended up banning were um, the uh, beanbag guns, which are very clearly non-lethal. And so there was an incident in Seattle where you had a guy who was, I believe he was homeless. He was naked and he had a machete and he was trying to break into homes. And so officers went down there with a canine unit, Jedi, and they sent him out to help, you know, go after this threat so they wouldn't have to shoot and kill him. And unfortunately, the dog ends up getting stabbed multiple times and then dies. I talked to an officer who said, we 100% in any other circumstance, we would have used one of these bad guns. Yeah. So here, here you are talking about another effect of this police uh, the, uh, equity movement in the communities. And you're talking on the Tucker Carlson show when he was on Fox. And uh, another second order problem with police defunding and woke policies. Let's listen. It's the reason they ended that law that Jason Rance will explain to us tonight. Jason is our man in the Pacific Northwest. He's got the story for us. Hey, Jason. Hey, welcome to another edition of Everything is Racist. This time it's bicycle helmet laws that are racist because black bicyclists were given tickets at a disproportionate rate than white bicyclists. Now, this claim is originally based on a non-peer-reviewed report by a woke PhD student over at the University of Washington. This was an attempt to tie bicycle infractions to instances of racist policing. So across the city of Seattle and King County as a whole, it's a $30 ticket if you're not wearing a helmet while riding your bike. But after the first couple 
couple years pretty much wasn't enforced. And yet the King County Board of Health decided to look into the ticket distribution as part of their commitment to what they define as equity because they were inspired by the BLM movement. So this report says black bicyclists are ticketed nearly four times more than white bicyclists for not wearing a helmet. But the data represents under 300 total tickets to black cyclists given out over 13 years. And some of the people who were ticketed were homeless, most likely riding stolen bikes, which likely caught the attention of the cop at the moment that they gave out this ticket. Oh, Lord have mercy. I mean, this is the kind of stupidity that happens. It, it really is. But again, part of the language, the, the left will call these things disproportionate, right? That There's a right. disproportionality. That is almost always a woke keyword that simply means, here's what the data says. That's it doesn't tell you the why. They want to infer the why. And so if someone who is black or, or black community or Latino community or Asian community, whatever it happens to be, is quote unquote disproportionately impacted, they want you to believe that it is because of their identity. Of course, there's no evidence to back that up. And in that story, just, I, like, there's zero evidence to suggest that anyone was being targeted because of the color of their skin. And if that were the case, why was it that Asians actually had the fewest number of tickets? Whites were ticketed more than them. So this idea, oh, it's white supremacy. Well, they're bad white supremacists then, I guess. Or, or is it very specific white supremacy where they only hate black people, but they love Latinos and Native Americans and whites too? It, it just never makes any sense. And that's what you have to start looking for when you can, when these arguments are put in front of you. But it really, a, a lot of people just will make the jump maybe because of a bias that they have or simply the way that it was presented. Mm -hmm. Here's one more um, down the line fallout, piece of fallout that happens in society as a result of this whole movement that you document in your book, What's Killing America. I should probably take my sticky pad off the off the title. Pretty. That's a very pretty um, cover, too. Um, and it is. Here's John Kennedy, Senator John Kennedy, talking to a person who's been nominated to fill a judgeship. And I want you to listen to this information. Prisons and jails are detrimental to public health and human rights and disproportionately harm marginalized communities, including black, brown, indigenous, and other communities of color, immigrants, people with mental illness, people with disabilities, people in the LGBTQ plus community, people who use drugs, people engaged in sex work and street economies, and people experiencing houselessness and poverty. So if you believe that about our prisons, how are you going to ever send somebody to prison? So, Senator, um, I will need to take a look at that letter, and I apologize that that's not something I found to... to um, uh, you know, to hand to this committee. You're not I can, denying you said that. Um, I do need to see the letter to see the context, because, again, it's not something I remember adding my name to. Yeah. Um, I can assure you, right. Senator. And uh, you also say, first, you, you call on Gover Governor uh, Lamont to, um, to, to release everybody in jail. Is that right? Because of the coronavirus? So again, Senator, I would need to see that letter in front of me. It certainly was not. You can find it with, a, just put your name in into Google. You'll find it in about three nanoseconds. I will, Senator. I can assure you that I. I... You, said, you said in your letter, Professor, we call on Gover Governor Lamont 
state of Connecticut and all Connecticut jurisdictions to immediate release to the back to the maximum extent possible people incarcerated pre-trial and post-conviction. What and and by the way, not only do we not want to arrest anyone and clear the streets, but we don't want to put them in jail either. Psst. And this and is And this was a movement. Yeah, this was a movement that was happening all over the place and it is still happening all over the place. You have several different factors involved here and on the one hand you've got prosecutors who don't want to prosecute, judges who aren't very judgmental, so they don't want to put anybody in jail. And you have lawmakers creating laws that basically set the standards for terms that you might spend in jail. And so what they're doing is they're either lowering it or they're going from a felony, changing it to a misdemeanor. A lot of these bills that they're trying to pass and some they have passed are retroactively applied. So you see a whole, you see a very clear and concerted effort to take people out of jail. And it's driven by this radical belief that the criminal justice system is inherently racist. It is a remnant of white supremacy, uh, and we need to dismantle it. And the only credit I, I give to the radicals is that they were up front. They told us. They didn't hide it. I mean, they told us their their goal was to dismantle systems of oppression. The problem is they think every system is oppressive, and their definition of oppressive is not based in any sense uh, of, or, of the word, nor is it based in reality. So- Again, you had people who fell for this, and I think that most people are well-intentioned. They just got tricked, and media doesn't point that out. Conservative media does, but it's not the same as really hammering it home and t- and getting into the minutia in some cases, but giving you the big picture, telling you how it actually shows up in real life, but the practical ways. And I, that that's, again, part of the reason why I wrote the book was I able to spend a little bit more time than I can elsewhere doing just that. Yeah, that's right. One last question. I know we have to let you go. And that is that you mentioned, or yeah, we mentioned the University of Washington and, you know, my alma mater, it just woke institution like none other. It's embarrassing. And how they are covering for anti-Semites on campus right now. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that's been a top subject of your program recently. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, uh, certainly a big issue for me because I'm an American Jew and American Jews right now are going through a lot of hate. We, we, I, I am, I don't normally get shocked by things because of what I do. And you're the same way, I'm assuming. We're, we're knee deep in all these stories every day and you kind of become desensitized. But my God, I never thought that we would see thousands upon thousands of people, not just locally, but around the country, celebrating a terrorist attack and then screaming about how they feel uh, targeted when they're criticized. And so at the University of Washington, they've had a number of hate rallies. They have professors like Megan Ibarra who stand up and ask why justice had to start on October 7th. You had staff members within the Office of Student Diversity and Inclusion at the College of Education sending out an all-student uh, letter to the College of Education basically defending Hamas and and showing its solidarity with Palestinians against those evil, oppressive Jews. And it's just, it's nonstop. And I would argue, even though a lot of time is spent, understandably so, on the situation at Harvard or Cornell, Columbia, I think of it as slightly different in that those schools have a lot of folks who don't live in the community, right? They're coming from out of state. These are really prestigious schools. Then you have the local schools like the universities of, uh, of Washington or Oregon, whatever it is. Those are primarily occupied by folks who live in the community. Well, these are 
kids who are going to be future politicians and they're going to stay in those cities in those large groups and they're going to develop because of the group think that happens on college campuses, they're going to start developing policies around that worldview that demonizes Jews and demonizes Israel. And so I view that as way more dangerous because it's just about numbers. That kid who goes to Harvard from LA, goes back to LA, doesn't bring a whole bunch of people with him or her. But when you're going to the University of Washington, because you live in Kenmore or Puyallup, well, you're going right back into your community. And those are a lot of numbers who all have that same viewpoint. Yeah, it, it is frightening. It really is. And you talk about, uh, in your book as well, you talk about unfettered illegal immigration and how that impacts yep. society and how it's dangerous. And Jason, I want to thank you very much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Awesome book. Get that book. Thank you so much. I appreciate what's it. Killing, yeah, What's Killing America? Go get yourself some. Yeah. So much more to talk about. Maybe we'll have you back. Thanks again. Yeah, for sure. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.